famed atheist Richard Dawkins often trots out the rhetorical question, if God created all things, then who created God? And the frequency with which he employs this, this rhetorical question, he must see it as some impossible obstacle for believers. However, the truth is this. The question, who created God, is a nonsensical question. It's absurd, irrational. How so? Think of it this way. If somebody were to ask you, why does a triangle have three sides? You would say that question is absurd. It's nonsensical. The very definition of a triangle is a three-sided polygon. Or if someone were to ask you the question, what sound does silence make? Again, you'd say that's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous question. Silence, by definition, is the absence of sound. Okay, so too is it with the question, who created God? It's nonsensical, absurd, irrational, because God, by definition, is uncreated and eternal. If we are talking about something that had a beginning and will have an end, whatever else we're talking about, we are not talking about God. So when Dawkins or any other of the so-called new atheists asks snidely who created God, they might think they're declaring a philosophical checkmate, when in reality they're only showing their ignorance of the very definition of God. Our first reading today sheds some light on the mystery of God, the one who alone always was, is, and will be. God manifests himself to Moses as a bush that is burning yet not consumed. And at the very heart of this reading, Moses asks God for his name. Now, in 2022, we often treat names as labels, interchangeable. But in the ancient world, for most of history, and especially in Hebrew cultures, name, uh, names were seen as, as connected to a person's identity, connected to the very essence of who that person was. So when Moses asks for a name, he's not asking for a label. He's asking for something that points to the very nature of God. And God responds with, I am who am. That is to say, I am the only truly existent one. I am the God who exists, who is. God's essence is Existence. He is identifying himself to Moses as the one necessary being, the one who exists of himself and therefore is the source of existence for all things in creation. God is not one of those things in the universe. He is outside of that. He transcends the universe. He is uncreated and eternal, the very ground of all being, of all that exists. St. Paul summed it up really well. He said, in him we live and move and have our being. The universe is not like an elaborate watch that God made, wound up, and let the machine run itself. No, God sustains creation and being moment to moment. The sacred name, I am who am, reveals this mysterious nature of God, 
who is himself the ground of all being, the source of all existence. But that's far from the only thing we learn in this first reading about God. First, he calls Moses by name. He doesn't need to be introduced to him. He doesn't say, hey, my name is I am who am. What's your name? No, he knows Moses before. He knew Moses before Moses was formed in the womb. He tells Moses that he is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. It means that God is not aloof. He's not some impersonal force. I mean, in time, he will reveal himself as a community of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. People aren't ready for that right now, so he doesn't go there. But what he shows is that he has been revealing himself progressively to his people, that he cares for us, that he's unfolding a plan of salvation, a plan that Moses has a role to play in. The same is true for all of us. God calls us by name. He knows us. Before we were formed in the womb, he knew us. His plan of salvation even now is unfolding throughout history, and there's a role for us to play in it. Maybe we will know that role one day. Maybe we'll have to be told it in the next life. But there is a mission that's been entrusted to us and not to another. And like Moses, though, the choice is ours. Are we going to say, Here I am, Lord, I come to do your will, or not. Now, we get the rest of the story of Moses in Exodus in paraphrased form in our second reading from St. Paul. He tells us that God freed Israel from slavery in Egypt by the miracle at the Red Sea, parting of the Red Sea. Then, before they could enter the Promised Land, they wandered in the desert for 40 years, and during that time, God miraculously sustained them with manna, this bread from heaven, miraculous water from the rock. But what's interesting is St. Paul says, essentially, God, who reveals his name as I am who am, wrote a deeper meaning into these events of salvation history that are recorded in sacred scripture. They serve as an example for us. The events of the Exodus, they are a template for the spiritual life, for following Christ. In baptism, we are freed from slavery to sin, but we don't immediately go to the true promised land of heaven. We have our sojourn, our wandering in this life. Even there, however, we are sustained with the supernatural food and drink of the Eucharist, the very body and blood of our Lord. But St. Paul's real point here is this. He says, God was not pleased with most of the Israelites, for they were struck in the desert. In spite of all the marvels they had witnessed, the miracles they had seen, only a few of those of the generation that left Egypt made it to the Promised Land. Because many, most, continued to doubt, to rebel, to prefer and wish they had stayed in Egypt, enslaved to a pagan pharaoh, rather than serve the Lord. And so what happened in the desert, Paul tells us, it's a warning for us. Just as the Israelites experienced the tremendous blessings of God and still grumbled and rebelled, so too can we. So we must heed this warning. We can't grow complacent. We must strive to always turn away from sin and conform our life to Christ. 
And that's really the simple message Jesus communicates in the gospel. He says we must repent. If we don't repent, we will perish. And he gives the image of a barren fig tree, one which the owner wants to chop down, but a gardener offers to cultivate and fertilize rather than chop down. It's as if the gardener is pleading for one more chance, one last chance for the tree to produce good fruit. This shows us that God is patient and merciful. He gives us every opportunity to repent and produce good fruit. The God who always was, is, and will be the Alpha and the Omega, he calls us by name. He has a plan for us, a mission not entrusted to another. He has a plan for our good in this life and in the next. And the first step in saying yes to Christ and a step that we need to repeat over and over again throughout our life is to repent of our sins. You know, I said this on Ash Wednesday, and I'll say it again. If there is only one thing you do this Lent, make one really good confession. Maybe there's something that's burdened you for a long time. Take this opportunity to bring that burden to the sacrament of God's mercy, to repent and be forgiven. The God who is the very source of all existence, he calls us by name to receive his mercy, to abide in him and to bear fruit. So let us say yes. Let us repent and be forgiven so that we might bear abundant fruit, so that we might become the saints he created us to be.